Chapter 6 Many miles downstream on the side to, to, it, <clears throat> to which the dogs had crossed a small cabin stood near the bank of the river surrounded by three or four acres of cleared land its solid uncompromising appearance lightened only by the scarlet geraniums at the window sills and a bright blue color a log barn stood back from it, and a steam bath house at the side nearer the river. The patch of vegetable garden, the young orchard, and the neatly fenced fields, each with their piles of cleared boulders and stumps, were small, orderly miracles of victory, won from the dark, encroaching forests that surrounded them. Rano Nermi and his wife lived there, as sturdy and uncompromising as the cabins they had built with their own hand-hewn logs, their lives as frugal and orderly as the fields they had wrested from the wilderness. They had tamed the bush, and in return, it yielded them their food and their scant living from trap lines and a wood lot. But the struggle to keep it in subjection was endless. They had retained their Finnish identity, complete when they left their homeland, exchanging only one country's set of solitudes and vast lonely forests for another's. And yet, and as yet, their only real contact with the new world that lay beyond their property line was through their ten-year-old daughter, Helvi, who knew no other homeland. Helvi walked the lonely miles to the waiting school bus each day. And through her, they strengthened their roots in the security of the new world and were content, meanwhile, with horizons limited by their labor. On the Sunday afternoon that the beaver dam broke, a day of some relaxation, Helvi was down by the river, skipping flat stones across the water and wishing that she had a companion. For she found it difficult to be entirely fair in a competition always held against herself. The riverbank was steep and high here, so she was quite safe when a rushing torrent of water, heralded by a great curling wave, swept past. She stood watching it, fascinated by the spectacle, thinking that she must go and tell her father, when her eye was caught by a piece of debris that had been whirling around in a back eddy and was now caught on some boulders at the edge of the bank. She could see what looked like a small, limp body on the surface. She ran along by the boiling water to investigate, scrambling down the bank to stand, looking pityingly at the wet, bedraggled body, wondering what it was, for she had never seen anything like it before. She dragged the mass of twigs and branches further up on land, then ran to call her mother. Mrs. Nermy was out in the yard by an old wood stove, which she still used for boiling the vegetable dyes for her weaving or peelings and scraps for the hens. She followed Helvi, calling out to her husband to come and see this strange animal washed up by an unfamiliar, swift, surging river. He came with his unhurried countryman's walk and quiet, thoughtful face and joined the others to look down in silence at the small, 
limp body, the darkly plastered fur betraying its slightness, the frail skull bones and thin crooked tail mercilessly exposed. Suddenly he bent down and laid his hand lightly on it for a moment, then pulled back the skin above and below one eye and looked more closely. He turned and saw Helvi's anxious, questioning face close to his own, and beyond that, her mother's. Is a drowned cat worth trying to save? He asked them. And when her mother nodded before Helvi's pleading eyes, he said no more, but scooped the soaking bundle up and walked back to the cabin, telling Helvi to run ahead and bring some dry sacks. He laid the cat down in a sunny patch by the wood stove and rubbed it vigorously with sacking, turning the body from side to side until the fur stood out in every direction and it looked like some disheveled old scarf. Then he wrapped the sacking firmly around and her mother pried the clenched teeth open. Helvi poured a little warm milk and precious brandy down the pale cold throat. She watched as a spasm ran through the body, followed by a faint cough, and then held her breath in sympathy as the cat retched and choked convulsively, a thin dribble of milk appearing at the side of its mouth. Reno laid the straining body over his knee and pressed gently over the ribcage. The cat choked and struggled for breath until at last a sudden gush of water streamed out and it lay relaxed. Reno gave a slow smile of satisfaction and handed the bundle of sacking to Helvi, telling her to keep it warm and quiet for a while, if she was sure she still wanted a cat. She felt the oven, still warm, though the fire had long died out, and then placed the cat on a tray inside, leaving the door open. When her mother went into the cabin to prepare supper and Reno left to milk the cow, Helvi sat cross-legged on the ground by the stove, anxiously chewing the end of one fair braid, watching and waiting. Every now and then she would put her hand into the oven to touch the cat, to loosen the sacking or to stroke the soft fur, which was beginning to pulsate with life under her fingers. After half an hour, she was rewarded. The cat opened his eyes. She leaned over and looked closely into them. Their blackness now contracted slowly to pinpoints, and a pair of astonishing, vivid blue eyes looked up instead. Presently, under her gentle stroking, she felt a throaty vibration, and then heard a rusty, feeble purring. Wildly excited, she called to her parents. Within another half hour, the little Finnish girl held in her lap a sleek, purring Siamese cat who had already finished two saucers of milk, which normally he detested drinking only water, and who had groomed himself from head to foot. By the time Nermi, the Nermi family were eating their supper around the scrubbed pine table, he had finished a bowl of chopped meat and was weaving his way around the table legs, begging in his plaintive odd voice for more food. His eyes crossed intently, his kinked tail held straight in the air like a banner. 
Helvi was fascinated by him, by his gentleness when she picked him up. That night the Nermies were having fresh pickerel, cooked in the old country way with the head still on and surrounded by potatoes. Helvi ladled the head with some broth and potatoes into a saucer and put it on the floor. Soon the fish head had disappeared to the accompaniment of pleased, rumbling growls. The potatoes followed. Then, holding down the plate with his paw, the cat polished it clean. Satisfied at last, he stretched superbly, his front paws extended so that he looked like a heraldic lion, and then jumped into Heldy's lap, curled himself around, and purred loudly. The parents' acceptance was completed by this action, though there had never been, never before been a time or place in the economy of their lives for an animal which did not earn its keep or lived anywhere else except the barn or kennel. For the first time in her life, Helvi had a pet. Helvi carried the cat up to bed with her and he draped himself with familiar ease over her shoulder as she climbed the steep ladder stairs leading to her little room in the eaves. She tucked him tenderly into an old wooden cradle, and he lay in sleeping contentment, his dark face incongruous against the doll's pillow. Late in the night, she woke to a loud purring in her ear and felt him treading a circle at her back. The wind blew a gust of cold rain across her face, and she leaned over to shut the window, hearing far away, so faint that it died in the second of wind-borne sound, the thin, high keening of a wolf. She shivered as she lay down, and then drew the new, comforting warmth of the cat close to her. When Helvi left in the morning for the long walk and ride to the distant school, cat lay curled on the windowsill among the geraniums. He had eaten a large plate of oatmeal. His coat shone in the sun as he licked it sleepily, his eyes following Mrs. Nermy as she moved about the cabin. But when she went outside with a basket of washing, she looked back to see him standing on his hind legs, peering after, his soundless mouth opening and shutting behind the window. She hurried back, fearful of her geraniums, and opened the door, at which he was already scratching, half expecting him to run. Instead, he followed her to the washing line and sat by the basket, purring. He followed her back and forth between the cabin and the wood stove, the hen house and the stable. When she shut him out once by mistake, he wailed plaintively. This was the pattern of his behavior all day. He shadowed the Nermies as they went about their chores, appearing silently on some point of vantage. The seat of the harrow, the sack of potatoes, the manger, or the well platform. His eyes on them constantly. Mrs. Nermie was touched by his apparent need for companionship. That his behavior was unlike that of other cats she attributed to his foreign appearance. But her husband was not so easily deceived. He had noticed an unusual intensity in the blue eyes. When a passing raven mocked the cat's voice, he did not look up, then later sat unheeding in the stable to a quick rustle in the straw behind. Reno knew then that the cat was deaf. 
carrying her school books and lunch pail. Helvi ran most of the way home across the fields and picked up the cat as well when he came to meet her. He clung to her shoulder, balancing easily while she performed the routine evening chores that awaited her. Undeterred by his weight, she fed the hens, gathered eggs, fetched water, and then sat at the table stringing dried mushrooms. When she put him down before supper, she saw that her father was right. The pointed ears did not respond to any sound, though she noticed that he started and turned his head at the vibration. If she clapped her hands or dropped even a small pebble on the bare floor. She had brought home two books from the traveling library. And after the supper dishes had been cleared away, her parents sat by the stove in the short interval before bed while she read aloud to them, translating as she went. They sat in their moment of rare relaxation. The cat stretched out on his back at their feet and the child's soft voice flowing through the dark austerity of the cabin carried them beyond the circle of light from the oil lamp to the warmth and brightness of strange lands. They heard of seafaring Siamese cats, seafaring Siamese cats, who worked their passages the world over, their small hammocks made and slung by their human messmates, who held them second to none as ship's cats, and of the great proud Siamese ratting corps, who patrolled the dockyards of Lehave with unceasing vigilance. They saw with eyes withdrawn and dreaming palace watch cats of long ago Siam, watching delicately, walking delicately on long simian legs around the fountained courtyards, their softly padding feet polishing the mosaics to a lustered path of centuries. At last they learned how these nobly born Siamese acquired a kink at the end of their tails and bequeathed it to all their descendants. And as they listened, they looked down in wonder, for there on the rag rug lay one of these, stretched out flat on his royal back, his illustrious tail twitching idly, and his jeweled eyes on their daughter's hand, as she turned the pages that spoke of his ancestors, the guardian cats of the Siamese princesses. Each princess, when she came down to bathe in the palace lake, would slip her rings for safekeeping on the tail of her attendant cat. So zealous in their charge were these proud cats that they bent the last joint sideways for safer custody. And in time, the faithful tails became crooked forever and their children's and their children's children's. One after another, the Nermes passed their hands admiringly down the tail before them to feed the truth in its bent, bony tip. Then Helvi gave him a bowl of milk, which he drank with regal condescension before she carried him up the ladder to bed. That night, and for one more, the cat lay curled peacefully in Helvi's arms, and in the daytime during her absence, he followed her parents everywhere. He trailed through the brush after her mother, as she searched for late mushrooms, then sat on the cabin steps and patted the dropped corn kernels as she shucked a stack of cobs 
He followed Reno in his workhorse across the fields to the woodlot and perched on the newly felled pungent stump, his head following their every movement. And he curled up by the door of the stable and watched the man mending harnesses and oiling traps. And in the late afternoons, when Helvy returned, he was there waiting for her, a rare and beautiful enigma in the certain routine of the day. He was one of them. But on the fourth day, he was restless, shaking his head and pawing his ears, his voice distressed at her back. At last he lay down purring loudly and pushed his head into her hand. The fur below his ears was soaking. Then she saw their sharp black triangles outlined against the little square window and watched them flicker and quiver in response to every small sound of the night. Glad for him, in his newfound hearing, she fell asleep. When she awoke late in the night, aware of the lost warmth, she saw him crouched at the open window, looking out over the pale fields and the tall, dark trees below. His long, sinuous tail thrashed to and fro as he measured the distance to the ground. Even as her hand moved out impulsively towards him, he sprang, landing with a soft thud. She looked down and saw his head turn for the first time to her voice, his eyes like glowing rubies as they caught the moonlight, then turn away. And with sudden, desolate knowledge, she knew that he had no further need of her. Through a blur of tears, she watched him go, feeling like a wraith in the night toward the river that had brought him. Soon the low, swiftly running form was lost among the shadows. Read the next chapter, read the next chapter, read the next chapter.